The Supreme Court, an unelected group of nine millionaires with lifetime appointments, has overturned Roe v. Wade, which guaranteed the right to abortion at the federal level. Tens of thousands of people have been in the streets all over the country since the Dobbs decision was announced on Friday and in the weeks prior to that in response to the draft decision leak. Biden called abortion, quote, a fundamental right in his speech Friday reacting to the decision, but has so far taken no action to restore this right. How can a militant women's movement overcome the indifference and outright hostility of the political establishment towards abortion rights? The Party for Socialism and Liberation and other grassroots activists are putting forward a program of struggle and immediate demands that can be implemented right now if Biden and the Democrats were willing to use their authority in the federal government. The PSL issued a statement yesterday that read in part, quote, anti-abortion trigger laws will take 30 days to take effect in most places. While our protests continue to demand federal legislation to make abortion a right and the elimination of the filibuster, we also demand the White House take emergency action. A public health emergency can be declared. Federal facilities and military hospitals could be opened to offer abortion care. These and many other actions are well within presidential authority without federal legislation. The government can and must assert that the Hyde Amendment, which denies federal funds for abortion in Medicaid and other health programs, does not apply to such emergency actions. After the leak of the draft opinion in May, the Biden administration began considering contingency plans like this. 34 Democratic senators have demanded that he act on them. Instead, the White House is sitting on its hands, telling people to vote in November and doing its utmost to defend the legitimacy, quote-unquote legitimacy, of a Supreme Court that has been captured by the far right. This is an outrageous display of cowardice and electoral manipulation, revealing greater allegiance to the institutions of ruling class power than to the millions demanding action in the face of an emergency. It is, however, no surprise from the man who, as senator, delivered Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court and who, until recently, was one of the main anti-choice Democrats in Washington. The Hyde Amendment is a rider that has been attached to the budget since 1976, which prohibits Medicaid from paying for abortions for poor women. Even though it remains on the books, it should not be construed as a kind of amendment to the Constitution that prevents Biden from taking emergency action right now to protect providers and patients. Of course, the Hyde Amendment is racist, sexist, and anti-poor and belongs in the dustbin of history. During the civil rights movement of the 1960s, organizers used the contradictions between federal and state laws to protect their right to demonstrate, holding protests at post offices, which are federal facilities, to provide some protection from Jim Crow state and local police. Many of the most important legal advances of the movement drew upon federal authority, precedents established during Reconstruction, to secure rights that states denied. This history provides a way forward again, but it requires courage and creativity, a desire to fight, and the masses of people to stay in the streets. That the Republicans will go to court to stop such actions is no excuse to not take emergency action. Courts and politicians alone are not the most decisive factor in the struggle, as the history of abortion access has shown. It took a militant mass movement in the streets to win legal abortion, which came in 1973 in the form of a decision from the Supreme Court. It wasn't a gift, but it was a response to a mass movement. That movement must and can be revived today, unquote. You can read the full statement at liberationnews.org. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
Welcome to this special edition of The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show. Our host, Brian Becker, has COVID and cannot join us today. Before we get started, we want to announce our new monthly seminar, which is coming up Tuesday, July 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. As always, this is a live seminar with Brian, the host of our show, and we will answer your questions that you can submit in advance or live as we go. We provide this live seminar and a mixed and mastered podcast recording of it to all our patrons and supporters who contribute $5, $10, $20, $50 or more a month to keep the show going. Register on Patreon to join us on Tuesday, July 5th, and to access the 16 podcast episodes of previous seminars, a highly valuable archive of political information and perspective, a perspective shaped by a highly refined socialist worldview on huge events like the war in Ukraine as it has unfolded and the January 6th attack, as well as practical discussions like how to organize in a rural area or a workplace and how to keep optimism and hope in dark days. You can register by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. It takes three minutes and it makes a huge difference for us. This show is a labor of love and commitment for all of us, and we must raise the money to do it. So again, to become a subscriber, to join our community, go to patreon.com slash the socialist program and register for the seminar on July 5th. Today, we'll be airing two incredible interviews from our video partner, Breakthrough News, from their live coverage just after the Dobbs decision came down. The first one is with Kim Smith. She's an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in South Carolina. And the second is with Mara Verhayden Hilliard, a constitutional rights lawyer and executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. We have Kim Smith with us, who's an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in South Carolina. Seems relevant since Liberation News was just mentioned. Kim, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Kim, you're in South Carolina. You know, obviously that's going to be ground zero, already has been ground zero around the attacks, around the rights to abortion. You know, maybe just my first question for you is, you know, hearing this, what is the impact that you think this is going to have in people in situations similar to where you are all across the South, especially women of color from working class backgrounds? I mean, our Governor McMaster already put out a statement that said that he was so glad about the Supreme Court decision and it was bringing back constitutional rights. Wow. So and we already have a trigger ban in place. So they are ready. And just I think I'm just so angry. And I think the ramifications for women of color just makes me even more angry, especially in the South. Especially in the South, where we have places like the Low Country and Charleston that have some of the highest eviction rates of women, you know, in the Southeast. We already don't have access. Low-income women already don't have access. They barely have access because of the Hyde Amendment. If you have Medicaid, you can't get, you know, access to Planned Parenthood in those different places to get abortions. And so we can't get an abortion. Anyways, but this just makes it even harder and really just economically how it impacts Black women. You know, as somebody who had an abortion, I was making $7.25 an hour with a five-year-old son. How was I supposed to be able to support another child and pay rent and have put gas in my car to get to work to the job that paid me $7.25? You know, it's like these ramifications are just so far-reaching, and Black women are always the first on a chopping block when things like this come to pass. Mm. You know, Kim, Rania, I see that you're back here. I don't know if you are 100% in. I see you smiling, so I don't want to jump over you if you want to add something. 
Actually, I wanted to ask if you could speak to the nature of what I was talking about before I was so rudely cut off YouTube, which is about how the Supreme Court exists to uphold the power of the ruling class and why that makes it illegitimate. No, I mean, it's not there to protect human rights, because if it was there to protect human rights, we wouldn't be in this fix where abortion rights just got yanked from everybody. It's there to uphold the status quo of the elite. It's there to protect the interests of the people who run this country who hate working class, poor and oppressed people. That's just it. And no matter how many times the U.S. government tries to tell us that, oh, we're here to protect your rights and the Supreme Court is upholding the law. You know, like you said earlier, Ronnie, there's no like they let slavery happen. Like all these different bodies let these horrible things. They let cops kill black people. The Supreme Court lets kids not eat lunch because they don't have money. Where is the Supreme Court when human rights violations are happening right here in our streets? Yeah, I mean, that's an extraordinarily good point. And I mean, you know, it speaks to one of the issues that I think is going to come up here and one that I already sort of spoke to, which is there's going to be, you know, mass protest. I think some have already started in different parts around the country. You know, I think that they're going to be, you know, continuing who knows for how long. Tens of millions are outraged. I mean, talk about the importance of that, Kim, because I think, you know, we've already we've heard from President Biden. We're hearing from the Democratic officials. Uh, you know, their line is abortion is on the ballot in November. You got to put Put more people in Congress who support this. So they're actually, it seems to me, downplaying and attempting to subvert the calls of people to protest and to channel it into the electoral arena in the fall. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look how long it took this decision to come down. You know, mm. people have been waiting on pins and needles for weeks, months for this decision, for weeks. People have been waiting to hear what happened. And we knew the outcome. We knew what was going to happen after the leak. But they did that intentionally to quell protests. They did it so people wouldn't get in the streets because when the leak happened, people were in the streets immediately. And they weren't expecting that type of turnout for a women's rights issue. And so they, of course, want you to channel all this energy and all this anger into voting. The Democrats, I can, I continue to say the Democrats had the House. Mm. People voted Democrats in and they couldn't even get the Women's Health Protection Act passed to put this into law. So what people need to do and what is happening, like you said, is be in the streets, but don't just be out there, stay out there and continue to protest and continue to make noise and continue to pop up and do what you need to do to get this overturned. And like it's up to states now. So you really got to hit these legislators in your states. Mm. Can you also talk a little bit about the fact that we have literally no welfare state to take care of women who have children? Exactly. You know, we see the baby formula shortage. Mm. We see that, you know, daycare centers and things like that are being closed across the board. We see that people Medicaid expansion in the South. Most of every black belt state in the South, if I'm not mistaken, Eugene, I know you're going to fact check me, but most of every black belt state in the South did not get a Medicare, Medicaid expansion, excuse me. So that means that thousands of people are going without health care access. And that means thousands of women, because disproportionately black and brown, black and Latina women, we are the most likely to be on Medicaid. Mm. So we don't have access to a lot of health care. I think that's an extraordinarily good point. I, I mean, it's sort of like, and I think this is an important point that you just made, Kim, especially because, you know, the way that this is often framed, and I think the way these issues is often framed is, you know, that this is like a suburban white women's issue. I mean, and it certainly is their issue. I think it's everybody's issue. But I mean, when we talk about the disproportionality in terms of, of deaths, the disproportionality in terms of, of access to care, I mean, you know, I was actually watching on um, HBO Max the other day, this, this movie, Jane, Good 
documentary. I'd encourage people to watch it about the underground abortion network in Chicago. And they were saying that after abortion was legalized in New York, immediately their clientele became almost all black women, poor black women, because people with money could fly to New York to get an abortion. But that disproportionality, Kim, I think is an extraordinarily important aspect of who this is really affecting. Yeah, exactly. And so many times you see that this struggle has been, like you said, just like a white middle class woman problem. But if we really just take a look at history, like black women have never had reproductive justice or bodily autonomy. You know, I live in a state where this on a state house grounds, it's a shrine to a man, you know, to Sims who did experiments on enslaved black women. We've never had reproductive justice or bodily autonomy. And like once we got Roe, they immediately put the Hyde Amendment into effect so that that disproportionate amount of black women and black and brown women could not have this access. And also, you know, y'all just had, you know, Dr. Brew on talking about Brittany Murphy. She's a pregnant mother incarcerated, which Mm -hmm. is also a part of the struggle, which is also a part of the struggle for reproductive justice and bodily autonomy, because we also have to think about how women who are incarcerated, who are pregnant, you know, people who are incarcerated who can have children do not have access to reproductive health care who don't have access to these things. And again, that falls disproportionately on Black women. So I'm wondering if we can shift this for a moment to something I keep seeing on Twitter, which is, this is your fault if you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. (laughs) This is your fault if you didn't vote for Democrats. Can you, both of you, please? Can we ban them? Oh my God, so many people. So many people, and I'm so sick of it. So can both of you address this constant trolling, like, Every time, this is your fault you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Apparently, it's not Ruth Bader Ginsburg's fault for, like, choosing to not retire when she had cancer. But anyways, please, please take this on for those of us who don't know how. (laughs) I mean, when somebody says, well, it's your fault for not voting for Hillary Clinton, first, let's take a look at Hillary Clinton's track record. Mm. Let's look at Hillary Clinton's track record with marginalized communities, because if I'm not mistaken, Hillary Clinton was the one of the main ones calling black and brown people monsters and savages mm. and all this and all that. So please tell me where it adds up. And if I vote for her, I, me as a black person is going to have some kind of rights to bodily autonomy when she's already shown how she feels about us. You can also look at her track record when it comes to any type of social justice issues, any type of issues. Hillary Clinton wasn't out there with Black Lives Matter. Hillary Clinton has not done anything to police brutality. Hillary Clinton was a main campaign point was giving more money to cops, if I'm not mistaken. It was Mm -hmm. like putting more money into the prison industrial complex. So when it's a topic like this that is a human, I'm sorry, but this is a human rights issue, a civil rights issue. So when it comes to an issue like this, please tell me, somebody show me where it shows that she or any of the other Democrats, for that matter, have cared about human rights or civil rights. I think that your point is extraordinarily well taken and extraordinarily well made. I mean, you know, one, you just have to have a level of historical ignorance, I think, to make that argument. And I would say, you know, twice in the past, well, in this century, let's say, the Democrats have controlled the Senate and the Congress. When President Obama became the president in January 21st of 2009, Democrats controlled both houses. When President Biden became president in January 21st of 2021, the Democrats, and they continue to, control both houses of, I can't actually remember it correctly here now, I don't think in 93, 
three, they did have both houses of Congress, but I could be wrong about that. But nevertheless, you know, it's not as if this is like an unknown element of what's going on. I mean, certainly they've had both houses in the wake of Roe passing in the 1970s. So, I mean, the Democrats have shown time and time again that they will not, in fact, take these actions. And when you look at what just took place with the Women's Health Protection Act, I think that's the clearest thing. All these people saying vote for Hillary Clinton, that's irrelevant. That was in the past. Right now, this year, Democrats had both houses of Congress and the presidency. They claim that they are for a right to abortion. They did not pass the Women's Health Protection Act because they did not have the votes in the Senate. They didn't have the votes in the Senate because two of their own members, two who were willing to go public, let's just remember that Manchin and Cinema take a lot of arrows, probably for other people who agree with them, said that they would not eliminate the filibuster to rule on this. The filibuster, and anyone who's protecting the filibuster, the history of protecting the filibuster is exactly what Manchin is doing. It's preventing the ability to have civil rights in the country. I mean, the primary defenders of the right to the filibuster or of these high thresholds, the 60-vote threshold for a discharge vote, are historically segregationists and others who want to block significant progress. So forget Hillary Clinton. Why is Joe Manchin not in there? People did vote for the Democrats. People are acting like, oh, you didn't do X, Y, Z. They did put them in there. They've done it twice since the turn of the century. Both times, both times, the Democrats have refused to codify Roe versus Wade into law. So the idea that you not voting for Clinton somehow dealt with this, the idea that voting for Democrats, you know, is going to fix it in the future, people have already done this, and the Democrats have shown themselves to be completely and totally useless. Yeah, I, I think it's rant. also, no, 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 it's a really good rant. I think it also speaks to the fact that we don't actually live in a democracy. I mean, geez, like if the polling on this says one thing and then you have a small group of people saying another, like how can you call it a democracy? And that speaks to something else. This is the country that runs around the world saying we have given ourselves the right to police all of you because we are the image of progress and like democracy. And then look at this. Like mm -hmm. at some point you have to think there has to be a segment of elites in America that actually view this as like negative for empire. Because how can you go around claiming to liberate the world when you just went back 50 years? I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, Kim, let me ask you this. I know you've got a lot going on and are working and mobilizing. Maybe if you like, talk about some of what y'all are doing in South Carolina. But, you know, what's your message to everyone out there who is, is feeling outraged at this? I think my biggest message, I think, for people is, you know, we got to do more than just be angry. We can't just sit home and be angry on Twitter. We can't just sit home and be where digital activism has its place. Not going to knock it. But this is the time where we need to be kicking the door down. We need mm -hmm. to be out in the streets and we need to be bringing, not just on our own, but bringing more people into the struggle, educating people. Eugene, you know, you've talked to it. It's got to be some type of historical ignorance or something. You know, there's a gap there. We need to also be educating while we're mobilizing and organizing because it's going to take all of us. It's going to take millions of a millions and hundreds of thousands of us to get in these streets and stay in these streets to make change. It didn't, you know. The things that happened with Derek Chauvin didn't happen overnight. Any type of tiny change that we got didn't happen overnight. It happened through struggle. And right now, at this moment, people need to not be afraid of struggle and get out there. That was Kim Smith, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in South Carolina. Now we'll hear an interview with Mara Verhayden Hilliard. She's a constitutional rights lawyer and executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. 
We are very honored to have with us back on the show Marva Hayden Hilliard, who's a constitutional rights lawyer and the executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. Marva, thank you so much for being with us here on the show. Thank you for having me. You know, I guess maybe my first question is, what is the basis for this decision? I mean, I saw that Justice Alito, I mean, just disgustingly tried to place this decision in the lineage of Brown v. Board of Education in terms of what they were doing. And I just thought, well, that can't be right. So what is actually going on here? Well, and, and in Plessy, I mean, he's, his whole uh, presentation is this, you know, weaving that somehow eviscerating women's fundamental rights to control their bodies, to control their futures, to control their lives, is in the long, proud tradition of recognition of civil rights. I mean, nobody reads that and takes that seriously, either in a layperson's read of it or in a lawyer's read of it. We know exactly what's happening, which is it's a deeply political court. It's a deeply political court that has shown its illegitimacy and the Supreme Court rests on the consent of the governed. I mean, that's the reality. They issue rulings. We all accept the rulings to some degree, whether we agree or don't agree, because it's this concept, right, of the, the fundamental authority of this pillar of government. But that is a very tricky precipice. And this generation and my generation and all of those that have fought for so long for so many years are not going to accept this ruling. And it's that simple. So what are the options, legally speaking? I mean, we always hear like once a Supreme Court ruling has been made, that's it. That's the end of the road. It's over. There's no going back. Is that true in this case? And if so, what are other avenues with the institutions that exist in America, if any, to overturn what was just overturned? Well, that's exactly the question, right? So the, the way that the court functions, and it functions in a pillar of American society as the judicial branch, is this concept, the concept that the court issues rulings, it's the final word, it's the final legal word, unless it's something that can be given a legislative outcome, in which case there can be a legislative change, and that society functions to whatever degree within the confines of those rulings. But when you decide, as this court has decided, that it's going to issue a ruling that is such a dramatic imposition on fundamental human rights and restriction or attempted restriction on human rights, you cannot expect that humanity is going to go along and agree with that. And yes, you can turn to a legislative uh, end. The, the question is, will, will Congress pass a law that protects fundamental abortion rights? But will they? They haven't so far. The Democrats have, you know, the House and the Senate. The Democrats have had the House and the Senate in the past under Obama. They've never done this. They haven't done it now. And equally, when things shift course, who gets to decide? This is one of those times where it's up to the people to decide. People have to make the decision collectively how we are going to govern our future and our lives. And this is really just the first domino, the opening shot of something bigger. With regard to Thomas's opinion, I mean, we know that this is the truth, and he's actually saying exactly what they're thinking. This court and the right-wing forces behind it and the religious forces behind this imposition on women is part of an effort to eviscerate and roll back 
decades of hard-fought rights that have been recognized by the court. Now, we believe those rights are ours, and the issue is a Supreme Court enshrinement and recognition of rights. And when the court is now looking at using the language it used in this opinion, which it will use and which Thomas is pointing to, as the next basis to now roll back all of these other fundamental rights that have been recognized, including marriage equality, even going way back to the recognition of the right to contraception, all of these elements in a, a patriarchal society that control other people's lives, they are looking at every opportunity now to take back these hard-fought rights that have been recognized by the Supreme Court, really you could see it coming from the labor movement in the 30s and then the recognition of rights to protest to the civil rights movement and people taking to the streets and forcing these recognitions, again, of fundamental civil rights with the marriage equality movement that just you know broke out and was so massive in the streets and then a recognition of the right to marriage. And now what we're seeing is them intending to dismantle everything they can dismantle and take us back decades. And we're not going to go. And I think that that raises a good point about where we should look to for maybe inspiration or guidance at this point in time. When you talk about like the people on the streets, you know, there wasn't always the decision for Roe v. Wade and abortion was illegal in America at one point. And there was activism, women's organizing in the pre-Roe era to push against that. And then, of course, you know, today, I mean, speaking of more modern times, I guess you also have all of this activism across Latin America that has actually succeeded in gaining the right to abortion and decriminalizing abortion across so many countries in the last decade alone. So so what do you think we can learn from past movements, current movements in the global South about how we in America should deal with this issue? The court, even though it claims it's, you know, not political, is of course deeply political. And the court, not just as the individual personalities, but the American institutions from, you know, the court to the legislative branch, they are reactive to the movement in terms of the defining nature of people when people come together as such a power and such a force and an immovable force that must be reckoned with. And when people in society make it clear exactly what course society will be on, that is a forward course, that is a course towards human liberation, and that they will not accept anything less, the institutions either have to follow that course, because that is the course of humanity, or they render themselves illegitimate and face those outcomes. And we are at one of those incredible defining moments today with this ruling, which again, as Thomas is signaling, is just going to be the start of an effort to eviscerate hard-fought rights, but rights that no one is giving up. You know, I think this is such an important point, Mar, this tradition of civil disobedience, maybe we should call it, of people standing up for what's right, sort of regardless of what the status quo ante may have been. And, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier. I watched it myself. I know probably many people have seen this HBO Max documentary, Jane, uh, about the underground abortion network in Chicago, late 60s, early 70s. You know, obviously many people are going to be out in the streets. And I guess I'm asking sort of a twofold piece here. I mean, on the one hand, we had Biden's, you know, ridiculous call in his speech you know, saying peaceful 30 different times about whatever the protest should be, which to me didn't really read peaceful. It read muted and totally unobjectionable. And then I think we have this question of, I think many people, you know, defying these laws. And and I guess, I don't know exactly what I'm asking here, but where do you put this in this conversation around, you know, what needs to happen now? 
Well, even if we talk about this as like, what is the law? I mean, the law that Alito is citing as like the ground on which this stands, right, is he's citing cases from like 1602 (laughs) and the 1700s. And, you know, Matthew Hale, who was this extraordinary misogynist who believed that men had the right to beat their wives because, of course, women were property. And when the court is talking about, it makes this argument that there is no right for women to have access to abortion as health care under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause because the restrictions on abortion, in their view, are not restrictions that are based on basically an effort to repress women that it's like a neutral restriction on abortion, like that's it. Instead of recognizing, as of course the court is not going to recognize, but as we all recognize that this is an outgrowth of patriarchy and an effort to suppress humanity and a large portion of humanity that has gone on for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. But that's actually what's in this opinion. It's like, have the Taliban write your opinion. And that is what they're asking all of us to accept and consent to is Hey, like 1602, like that isn't going to fly with people. That isn't going to stand. So when, you know, as you're asking, like, well, you know, like with the Jane Collective, with the movements, with the struggle for society and for societal change, that is what's going to happen now. I mean, people are going to be out there and and people have to be out there. I just wanted to point out, I actually am not even sure what the Taliban's position is on abortion, but they may not actually be against it. I just wanted to throw that out there because that's the kind of thinking, like, it's it's like, wow, you might be worse than the Taliban on this issue. Think about that, people in the Supreme Court. Go ahead, Eugene. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I think that they might not have an objection to abortion. (laughs) Restrictions on abortion are not a sex-based classification, right? So it's not subject to what's called heightened scrutiny. And that's actually the position that they're taking. So they dismiss out of hand any 14th Amendment equal protection claim. And then the question becomes the 14th Amendment due process claims, which is what they have overridden today, that there's any grounding there that allows women to control their lives and other people who become pregnant to be able to control their lives. But we understand that even where this affects the LGBTQ community, that the repression of women and the repression of the LGBTQ community is grounded in patriarchy and a demand that people are controlled and fit into patriarchal roles. You know, Mara, you're already speaking to this, and and I'm I'm glad you brought up that 1602 piece and and also Hale and others, because, you know, I saw maybe my fault that I was even amazed by this, but, you know, just an amazing study the other day about, you know, women who had been surveyed about the impact of an unplanned abortion, like, you know, 60 some odd percent were worried they'd have to stop working, they wouldn't be able to go to school, you know, that their mental health would deteriorate. Just keep talking, if you could, about this reality, because I think to some people, it's so far from their minds, you know, what this really means to force, you know, at least potentially tens of millions of women in any given circumstance to carry a pregnancy to term against their will. Well, it affects women, of course, in so many different ways. But, you know, from the medical issues, which you were touching on earlier, and, you know, the extraordinary level of maternal mortality in the United States, from what it does to a woman's body, I mean, if a woman chooses that she wants to be pregnant, that she wants to proceed with gestation, you know, this is still a huge toll on a human body. But of course, for many people, it is a toll that ends in death and or extreme, you know, medical crisis. And aside from that issue, the idea 
that women, which is really what's in this opinion, is that women are vessels and that women are objects. And that's where we go back to the Matthew Hale and those, you know, bright thinkers of the 1600s and 1700s when it comes to women or anybody else. And the idea that women are objects, the idea that women are property, the idea that women are vessels, the idea that you can actually do forced gestation, which is what this is, that's telling all of these, you know, tens of millions of women and other people in the United States can get pregnant, that, you know, you can be subject to forced gestation. And it defuturizes people. I mean, that's ultimately what it is. It defuturizes women. It says that you don't get to go to school. You don't get to live your life. You don't get actually to have those other children that you might have had, had you not been forced to have children now, but then had children at another point in your life when you were ready to have children and give them the life that they deserve as well as your own life. It's a complete destruction of a human life to force somebody to be pregnant and carry that pregnancy to term, whether or not that person is you know, then able to put up for adoption or whether they're forced to care for the child. It's an extraordinary destruction. Well, Mara, I really appreciate you being willing to join us. And and just real quick before we let you go, where can people find the work of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund? Because I know you're on the front lines of many, many crucial fights. Um, You can follow us on Twitter at ThePCJF or come to our website, which is justiceonline.org. And... Please do, because we're going to have everyone's back as we expect and will be with everyone in the streets on this. Mm -hmm. Right on. Well, Mara, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.